The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Designing the Future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. And importantly, they will discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 welcome. If you've been listening for a while, you know the code. Times four means we have four people on the panel, four super-duper guests. So this is Designing the Future with Game Changers. Let's see what the buzz on the street is today. Oh, my. We have a quote from Bill Gates. This may be coming as a shock to some of you that he's thinking this way, but I have a feeling a lot of you will agree. The robot that takes your job should pay taxes. Just let me let that sink in for a second. You all know who Bill Gates is. By the way, his net worth now is about $85 billion. We'll just leave that alone. So this is part two of a topic we began on this series on February 9th. It was the second episode of this brand new series that started here in 2017. And our panel peered ahead into the future to describe future tech trends and their impact on blue-collar and white-collar occupations, meaning jobs. That's why I gave the quote from Bill Gates. Today is part two, and we're going to cover how tech innovations... Okay, what are we talking about? Machine learning. You might know it as MLAI. That's artificial intelligence. Predictive modeling and 3D printing. Is there a 3D printer coming to a basement, garage, attic, or dining room near you? How these are impacting us right now as we speak. So welcome to part two of Designing the Future Tech Trends Impact Part 2. Stellar panel today. Let me tell you who they are. No strangers to Game Changers Radio. First, we have Gray Scott, futurist, techno-philosopher. I love that title. And founder and CEO of SeriousWonder.com. Gray was on Coffee Break with Game Changers with me just yesterday talking about chatbots and AI. We had a delicious conversation. And joining us also coming back is Jeremy C. Thomas, founder and chief catalyst. I like that title, too, at Karam, Karam, C-A-R-O-M, and he'll tell us why that is not something to do with skiing. And joining them on the panel, also returning guest is Josh Bernstein, VP of Technical Strategy for the Emerging Technologies Division at Dell EMC. And rounding out the panel is one of the sponsors of the series. We're delighted to have her on the air again. It's Jennifer Ford, Executive Director for the North American Presales Design Thinking Team at SAP, Operative term there, design thinking. Okay, so let's circle around the table to Gray Scott, and Gray has sent me a quote from Alvin Toffler. Alvin Toffler just left us last year, June 27, 2016. He passed away. He was an American writer and futurist. If you've ever heard the term information overload, yeah, he coined that term in his first book, Future Shock, which has already sold Almost 6 million, well, actually more than 6 million copies. Interestingly enough, he and his wife, Heidi Toffler, collaborated on most of their writings. In his third wave book, which debuted in 1980, 
Toffler examined the reaction to changes in society, which is what we're talking about now. He foresaw, talking about looking into the future, Gray can appreciate this, Alvin Toffler foresaw technical advances including cloning, personal computers, what? The internet? Oh, so Al Gore didn't invent it, but maybe he did. Alvin Toffler foresaw it. Cable TV and mobile communication, my, my, my. So here's the quote Gray has selected. One of the definitions of sanity is the ability to tell real from unreal. Soon, we'll need a new definition. Gray Scott, have you been since yesterday? Everything good? (laughs) I'm doing well, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you. You're on a Skype connection today, speaking of technological impact, and you sound fabulous. So, Gray, tell me, are you a big follower of uh, Mr. Future Shock? I'll call the late Mr. Toffler. I am, actually. I've read a lot of his books, and uh, I, I, I agree with his ability to see how technology was changing culture. And, of course, you and I have talked about this before, how culture really drives the technology because if people don't embrace the technology, if they're afraid of the technology, the technology will fail. And so um, I think that's what we're going to see more of in the near future. Yeah, I think so. In the near future, you and I have also talked, Gray, I believe, about whether the future is after Bonnie finishes a sentence and pauses. That was the future right there in that little tiny half a second pause. Are, are we in the future right now? Is it is the future of the present? Can you just help me with that a little bit in terms of our, our, well, our viewpoint? I think we've, yeah, I think we've talked about this before about how we're constantly arriving in the future. And I've sort of broken it down into three distinct uh, areas. There's the personal future, the local future, and the non-local future. Your personal future is what's happening to you right now. The non-local future is what's happening to your community, and it's sort of the near future, and the far future is the non-local future. And that's stuff that happens around the world. It's stuff that may happen in 5 to 10 to 20 years. Wow. Okay. We are constantly arriving in the future. That's a quotable moment, and you know I'm tweeting it as we speak. Gray, thank you so much for all your time this week. Appreciated. Looking forward to more from you on this panel. And now let's go next to Gray. Is sitting Mr. Jeremy C. Thomas. At Jeremy, remind me, is it Karam? Karam? It's not, we're not skiing, are we? Well, how do you pronounce your company? You had it right in the first one. It's Karam. 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 Like Caramel, right? Yes. Okay, which is not in my coffee because I don't have coffee today. Jeremy Thomas has quoted Vincent van Gogh looking way back in time. Uh, Vincent Wilhelm van Gogh, Dutch post-impressionist painter, among the most famous and influential figures in the history of Western art. He created in over just over a decade, he created 2,100 artworks, including 860 oil paintings, most in the last two years of his life. He had a sad ending, suicide at age 37, years of poverty and mental illness, but Van Gogh certainly was brilliant. And this is, comes from a letter to, I believe, his brother, Theo, or Theo Van Gogh, from November 1882, when Van Gogh was just 29 years old. Jeremy, I took the the time to look up the whole context of the quote. So I'm going to read the quote first, then I'm going to read the context, if you don't mind, okay? Sure. Okay, so the quote that Jeremy has selected is, Do not quench your inspiration and your imagination. Do not become the slave of your model. And here's the context. He was saying to his brother, Two things that, in my opinion, reinforce one another and remain eternally true are, here's the quote now, Do not quench your inspiration and your imagination. Do not become the slave of your model. And again, 
take the model and study it. Otherwise, your inspiration will never become plastically concrete. There's a couple of interesting conundrums in there. So, Jeremy, officially welcome back. How have you been? And tell me how you picked this quote from Mr. Van Gogh. Hi, Bonnie. Thank you. I'm happy to be back um, and, and enjoy this discussion once again. Thank you. What really drew me to this quote is, um, you know, I do a lot of design thinking and I'm doing it in the context of some of these uh, technologies that we're discussing. And, you know, my concern is as we, or not concern, but my, my thoughts as we move into this world and, and move into our, our future, whatever time horizon it is, is that we're so stuck in the technology or following the model to do them that we lose a little bit the human element. And the human element is what I think Van Gogh was talking about there with the inspiration and the imagination. So how can we make sure that we keep the human inspiration and imagination above and beyond the technology? And, and I think that's very critical to our future and how we consume and, and how well we develop our, our, our culture and our economy uh, based on these wonderful technolo- technological innovations. Thank you. And you put wonderful in front of the phrase technological innovations. Are they all wonderful or are we batting, batting close to a thousand on that one? What do you think, Jeremy? I think that the innovations themselves are wonderful. I think the way we handle them as a society and a culture and, and a government is a little bit worrying because we, we do tend to adopt these technologies. And, and I would disagree, disagree I think, with, with Graylo. I don't think culture is leading this. I think that technology is leading this, and a culture still doesn't even know how, for example, AI is going to be a part of our lives. What does it mean for the average person? Um, I don't think we have that story because I don't think it exists in the culture yet, and I don't think anyone's clamoring for it. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to hear more about where we're headed with that. Very interesting. We, we won't do a rebuttal back yet. Between you and Gray, we're going to continue to go around the table with the quotes. But, Gray, keep that in mind. We, we, we will have you respond to Josh. Very interesting. And we love a little contentiousness here on the show where everybody does not, uh, what we call it, uh, uh, enthusiastically or violently agree with everything. So thank you very much for that. Uh, that was Jeremy. And now I'm up to Josh. My notes were ahead. We have three J's on the panel today, Jeremy, Josh, and Jennifer. I told Gray he has to change his name from a G to some kind of a J. I don't know. We'll come up with something. So uh, Josh Bernstein is next VP of Technical Strategy for the Emerging Technologies Division at Dell EMC. And Josh has sent us a quote from Victor Emil Frankel. 1905 to 1997, he was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist as well as a Holocaust survivor. That term has been in the news recently. We are not political show. We will not talk about that. Viktor Frankl was the founder of Logotherapy, which is a form of existential analysis, the third Viennese school of psychotherapy. I'll just tell you that his best-selling book was called Man's Search for a Meaning, which had multiple alternate titles chronicling his experiences in a concentration camp, which led him to discover the importance of finding meaning in all forms of existence, even the worst ones and a reason to continue living. So here is the quote from Viktor Frankl. When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Josh Bernstein, how have you been? Welcome back. I'm wonderful. Thank you. I've been great. Thank you for having me back. 
We are delighted. So talk to me. This is a heavy-duty quote here. Uh, reminds me a little bit of the <laughs> Einstein quote about, you know, the definition of insanity, doing things over and over again, expecting different results. And Frankel is just getting to the to the meat and bones of it and saying, well, if you can't change the situation, hey, look at yourself. So tell me, how does this relate to our topic today? Well, I think, um, and this was not planned, I promise, but I think this relates to kind of what Jeremy said. I think that, um, in a large extent, we have uh, a tremendous amount of technology that's being developed and a tremendous amount of innovation that's happening. Um, but what we find, I think, both socially and, and technologically, um, we as humans, our culture, our, our individuals, um, are, are afraid to change. We are programmed not to change and not to want to uh, evolve, almost. And I think what, um, what Dr. Frankel was, was thinking here was, um, you know, it was very, very deep, but I think it has a lot of application to this fear that we have as a society to, to be worried about robots taking over our jobs or robots taking taxes or, um, you know, new technologies that come out that, that sort of threaten people's status quo. And I reflected on this quote, you know, uh, from the sense that, that people should be comfortable with change. And, and if we're not comfortable with change, the issue is generally rooted in ourselves and not rooted in the technology. We're not rooted necessarily in the discussion at hand. And so, um, I, I think it, it, this, this goes, you know, from, from something very deep down with inside of us all the way up to a much broader cultural level. So it really resonated with me and I thought, I thought it was interesting for the discussion. Very much. Thank you very much. And I get a real kick out of your Twitter handle. Josh, oh, quit your jo- <laughs> quit your joshing. <laughs> First of all, that's such an old-fashioned term. Oh, you're just joshing with me, and I I love the sense of humor. So thank you very much for for sharing that. I am tweeting something about you right now. And now let's bring on our fourth panelist, another Jay. It's Jennifer Ford, the co-sponsor of this series with her colleague, Charlotte Buey. And Jennifer has sent us a quote from Frank Zappa. I didn't even know he had a middle name. Frank Vincent Zappa, 1940 to 1993. I can't believe he's been gone that long. American musician, band leader, composer, songwriter, producer, guitarist, and filmmaker. What was he famous for? Nonconformity, freeform improvisation, sound experiments, musical virtuosity, I don't know how that's crept in there, and satire of American culture, and maybe we'll get into, Gray, a little bit about how AI and chatbots might be, in fact, a satire of American culture. In his 30-plus year career, Zappa composed rock, pop, jazz, jazz fusion, orchestral, and musique concrète, that's French, works, and almost 60 albums of the 60 albums he released with his band, The Mothers of Invention, as a solo artist, he produced most of them himself. Very interesting. He also designed album covers. What can I say about Frank Zappa? And here's the quote Jennifer has selected. Without deviation from the norm, progress is not possible. Jennifer, welcome. How are you? Thanks. I'm doing great. I really appreciate being back on. So, we are yes, delighted to have you. Is, uh, tell, tell me, are you, are you a big Frank Zappa fan? Do you remember the Mothers of Invention, Jennifer? You're kind of young for that, aren't you? Uh, no, no, I'm I'm not. I'm not as I'm not the uh, the spring chicken. I sound like, <laughs> but okay. um, and actually, yes, I do. I uh, I am a fan of Frank Zappa. I am not as much a fan of his music, but my husband is. So, I do know uh, a bit about him and about his life. And 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 what struck me about this quote, and it's interesting because as I've heard uh, our other panelists talk. 
you know, I, I think we're, we're all in the same theme and that I look at um, this quote and, and deviation from the norm. If we take technology and we try to shove technology into what we've always done as just mm-hmm. a, a helper or, you know, just a, a way to continue to interact with each other, um, you know, to create communities that are stagnant but are enabled by technology and remain stagnant will never actually reach the point that we aspire to. And it's not until we start thinking about a sense of community, a sense of, of who we are, how we work, what we do together, you know, truly understand what we do aspire to be, you know, as, as human beings that, you know, start to look outside of what we've always done, that then we can actually have progress. You know, but we need those people to tweak us and to deviate from the norm to get us to break out of, of what we've always thought and what we've always done. Very interesting. And I'm thinking while you're speaking, Jennifer and the rest of the panel, that do we need to involve the idea of the demographics of our current culture? I know on on many of our HR-focused shows we talk about five different demographic cohorts are working side-by-side in the workplace. I don't think this has ever happened. The question is, who is welcoming the adoption of new tech trends? That's what we're talking about today. Who are the ones who are willing to change? Is it culture of different demographics that is accepting or rejecting Mm -hmm. or running with imagination on on what technology can afford us, it can afford Mm -hmm. them? Uh, Maybe that's a little existential, but perhaps we want to answer that question. Jennifer, since I brought this up while you were speaking, what do you think? Do you think that different parts, different segments of our population right now are some are embracing these trends more and others are saying, nah, we didn't need it in the first place. Go away. What do you think? You know, I I think that um, what we haven't done a good job of is showing each of the different demographics how technology is of value to them. You know, and I think when we start to do that and apply it to things that they find important, um, then, then things will change and there will be more interest and there will be more acceptance. Thank you, Jennifer. Let, let's pose that same question around to the other three panelists. Gray Scott, anything to do with demographics here in terms of who is reading about, hearing about, adopting certain technologies and saying, yeah, this works for me or nah, we didn't need it at all? What do you think? Well, I mean, you do see different uh, reactions to technology and different demographics, of course, um, mainly because the younger generation has, of course, grown up with technology. They they don't know mm-hmm. what it's like to have to get in the car and go find somebody when you want to talk to them. <laughs> I mean, they just pick up their phone and they send a text message. So the mm-hmm. the lines, the demographic lines of, of uh, uptake for technology, of course, are different. Uh, the other thing I want to sort of bring up here, and this goes back to the opening statement, um, if... Uh, of course, culture in a lot of ways is following the trends of technology as they uh, emerge. But I, I think what I meant in the opener was that if if people don't understand the technology, if it makes them uncomfortable, um, they're not going to accept that technology. Now, we've, we've seen this before where people have to go back and redesign certain technologies so that people can either understand it, uh, so that they can interact with it, so I think some of those demographics um, are also affected. I mean, if you, if you give a new technology to a 16-year-old, 
it's so shocking to watch how quickly they embrace it and how quickly mm-hmm. they, can, they can understand how to use it. So that's interesting. Very interesting. Thank you. And, and let's pass this question along to Jeremy C. Thomas at Caram, Caramel, Caram. I got it. Jeremy, what do you think? Anything to do with demographics in terms of the culture accepting, rejecting, uh, or just pondering new tech trends? You know, I think um, to, to Jennifer Integrate, I think demographics does play a huge role in our ability uh, to consume it. And, you know, right now we're we're living in a, a place, especially here in the, the United States, where there's you know a, a lot stronger eye on demographics, and I think the technology will continue to do the same. But it will depend on who we're focused on and, and what's kind of happening. And Gray, I, I think your points about um, technology and, and its ability to change and adapt based on uh, culture's adaptation to it uh, absolutely is true. I mean, we can go back to the, the first iPhone and see that. It wasn't the first uh, tablet phone, but it was the first one that people finally kind of took on. And uh, and I think that's, you know, something that, that will continue to happen. One of the big differences this time, I think, is um, what Josh referred to, and that's this idea of, the you know, the, the fear of change, the fear of displacement of your job. Uh, you know, iPhones were never really a threat to take away, at least in most people's minds, to take away their jobs. Machine learning and robotics and these other things, they are very much a threat to a lot of people to take away the way they've lived their lives. And that's still a huge demographic for technology to deal with. It already doesn't adopt every technology as it is. And now looking forward, it's it's going to be incumbent on us to really think about how do we bring along the folks who maybe are a little bit more resistant and who very well may be the more likely ones to be uh, adversely impacted by some of the changes that are going to come from from the technologies we're talking about on this particular show. And now let's get Josh Bernstein on on this part of the conversation. Josh, thoughts, please. Yeah, I think, uh, I think, Jeremy, what you said is really interesting, though. Um, the reality of, of robots and things like that threatening people's jobs is that the demographic that, that's being threatened, you know, ultimately doesn't really have a choice as to, as to whether or not they get to accept it. Like, it's going to happen for them or not. Um, so I think it's, it's true, you know, the iPhone and other technologies have come around that, that not, not necessarily have threatened um, people the way that a robot has threatened somebody's livelihood. But the reality is, for better or for worse, is that the robot, like, the, the, the people, the employees or the, the people doing the job aren't going to have a choice. Um, I, um, right. I had a really interesting experience uh, this past week where um, we have an Alexa. We you know, have an Amazon Echo in the house. And my two-year-old mm-hmm. runs around trying to talk to Amazon, you know, and the Echo all the time, saying, Alexa, play old McDonald's, and runs around all the time. And on Monday, we had an older couple in the house, and um, they heard my two-year-old try to do this. And they, um, they were shocked, first of all, that, you know, this technology existed, but also that my two-year-old, you know, would interact with it. And as I explained how the technology worked, the gentleman said to me, wait, you mean it's listening to you all the time? And he was sort of, ah. you know, taken aback and, and um, shocked that, that this would be sort of acceptable to have in your house. But I think what, what's interesting about the demographics on this was, um, and my wife and I <laughs> discuss this all the time, but... As my son talks to Amazon, um, you know, is it appropriate for him to say please and thank you and treat this uh, this robot, if you will, 
as a human being. I obviously feel strongly. He should say please and thank you, and my wife doesn't necessarily agree. She thinks it's a little bit silly. But the older couple was struck by the fact that as my son was talking to to the Echo to say, play old McDonald, when the song came on, my son said, thank you, Alexa. And I think more, wow. than, more than the fear and sort of the shock, it was this... Um, this sort of misunderstanding or th- it was just this exasperation that, that, you know, we would treat this robot as a human being and, and treat it with a please and thank you. And so I think uh, for me and for the story around demographic, that's what was most interesting. That's been most on my mind about it. Very, very interesting. I, I'm just going to interject here. Gray and I had a conversation on Coffee Break with Game Changers yesterday. Gray, who was on with us? Refresh me. Who was our other panelist? It was... Um Robin Kieran from CORE. I just pulled it up. Yes, Robin Kieran. It was wonderful. We were having a conversation where I asked if, if chatbots in particular, and the bot part, of course, comes from robot, if chatbots yeah, would I be would, imbued with, with a, uh, an IQ. Remember that, Gray? And, and I asked the oh. question, and, and we talked about how the person coding the personality, yes, yes, yes. persona, sentiment, and, and the ability of that chatbot to machine learn and understand us as humans, if that chatbot would, would come with, yeah, I only want the chatbot with the IQ of 185 or, or higher because they would understand who I am or where I'm coming from. So I, I think this goes into a little bit of, we're going back into culture and, and politeness, if you will. Uh, Jeremy, interesting question. Should we say please and thank you to our robots and chatbots? Let me just go around the panel and ask that. I know we're, we haven't taken our break yet, but this is just too good to stop. Gray, should we be polite to our chatbots and robots? Well, Bonnie, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I think I told you before, I'm, I'm working on a book right now, and one of the chapters is on animism and the idea that we are infusing this personhood into uh, our objects, our technologies, our robots. And um, I think the idea that we, we learn about who we are and what we are by how we treat others, and in the future, it's going to be, we're going to learn about ourselves by seeing how we treat our humanoid robot friends. Uh, That's going to tell us a lot about who we are as a society and uh, as individuals. Interesting. You know, Gray, there's um, an old phrase, an old guideline I don't think Jennifer would know that she's probably way too young. Jennifer, I am I'm declaring that you're too young for this. That when you when a woman goes out on a date to a restaurant, a first or second date with a new guy in her life, the way to tell if he's respectful, he will be respectful of her and of people he knows are how he treats the waiter, the wait staff in the restaurant. Is he polite? Is he pushy? Is he bossy? Is he rude? Is he downright disgusting in the way he orders them around? Does he not say please and thank you? So this is, I think it's getting back to the same thing. What do you think, Gray? I think you're right. I mean, I think what we're touching on here is uh, something that, that we've talked about before, which is the the idea that technology is going to act as a portal inward uh, individually and as, as a culture and as a society for our species. Um, this thing that we're creating, I mean, I'm talking about technology as a whole. This thing, this technology, has been evolving with us since the very beginning of time. I mean, since the very first time we started the first fire, the first time we chiseled the first wheel, the steam engine, all the way up to the iPhone, and now to artificial intelligence, all of that has been acting as a a mirror to ourselves, a mirror, a companion to who we really are. And I love the story of, 
of the child saying thank you to this machine because it shows that there's empathy, that there's care. Um, I would be more worried by children that start kicking robots or that uh, children that start abusing robots. That would be a, a, a definite dark side of our culture. Thank you very much. Interesting part of the conversation. Jeremy, I'm going to circle around to you. What do you think? Please and thank you. Culture mirror reflecting back on who we really are. What do you think? I think it's it's absolutely uh, an accurate point, and I, I think this idea, especially of the um, you know maintaining the politeness, is is very critical. I also have a two year old and a, a six year old, and I see them integrate the technology we have into their lives, and it, it it does happen very seamlessly. I think we have a bit of a dichotomy now, though, because you know while I see the same thing that that Josh sees, where the the please and thank you happens. I also see other forms of technology, and I'll give the example of my Xfinity cable. You know, my kids, they, they come down and they just say, watch the Octonaut, you know, and there's not an opportunity in that one for them to even integrate that sort of, of, of talk back and forth. And so, you know, what I would worry about is while I think it's important, will some of the technologies as they develop already start to erode the politeness and the, the manners factor because they're not keeping up with things like Alexa which or Siri. You can also say please and thank you to Siri, and she That's will right. respond with, uh, you know, uh, also the, the similar kind of thing. So, you know, in some parts it's there, in some parts it's not. Which part's going to win? Um, and if we think simply about texting, which is the way most of us now, mm-hmm. um, you know, communicate, fewer and fewer people use the politeness. It's all shortened down and eliminated for the brevity of a text. And is that going to be the language we speak, whether it's to uh, a robot, uh, an AI interface, or, or anything, or is it going to be a more human thing? And we do need to look inward. I think that's the important thing. And I, I think there's a small, small demographic of the world that thinks this way, but I think most people are not thinking about how technology will make them look in, internally and, and how it develops them as a human Thank you. Very. We're getting very deep here. Josh, any thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the interesting things, certainly, um, that we tried to build into Siri was, um, was a sense of a personality. And so the fact that you could interact with Siri as a human being um, was very, very important to us. And, and we thought that if that wasn't there, um, you know, the, the consumers would treat Siri as, you know, your cable box where there's just no human aspect, there's no humanity to it and be afraid of it maybe. And so when Siri was designed, we did it very deliberately to include this, you know, this personality. But I think that, um, you know, the future here is inevitable. Um, For generations and generations, we have struggled against discrimination of um, people or culture that were believed to be less than. And, you know, over time, I think history has shown that that humanity, if you will, has prevailed and equal rights has prevailed. I mean, we're not, and it's never done, but certainly, like, this is a recurring theme. And I think the next, the next sort of, uh, you know, wave of this will happen as our technology becomes more human and more consumable. I think we'll see, uh, you know, maybe a science fiction where, um, there's a group of people in the world that think robots are less than and they have all this artificial intelligence and all this sophistication. Um, and then there's another faction of people in the world that want them to have equal rights. And so I think that, you know, that, that's just inevitable. It, it's probably a long, 
I forgot what Jeremy or Greg said, but it's, you know, the future future, the far future. Um, but I think it's inevitable, and I think that in an effort to make technology more consumable, we should um, design it in such a way that it is, it is human. It does have a, huma- a humanitarian side to it, and that we are given the opportunity to treat technology uh, politely and respectfully. And, and I would go back to your, your cable box example. There's no reason why they, they can't engineer that, that human side into that interaction. I think that would go a long way for setting the table for, uh, you know, maybe not human rights, but, but objective rights. I don't know. Um, you know, in the far future. Thank you very much. Interesting conversation. Jennifer, I don't think we envisioned it uh, going this way. And in fact, we haven't even taken a break and it's too late to take one. So we're just going to hit a couple more topics before we go to the future part of the show, the crystal ball. Jennifer Ford, what do you think about this interesting back and forth with Gray Scott, Jeremy Thomas, and Josh Bernstein? Uh, I I greatly appreciate the fact that uh, that Josh has his children say please and thank you. I I agree. Um, The show Westworld was uh, very interesting. Uh, I loved it and was horrified by it at the same time because I agree with Josh in that if we don't, if we don't think of something that is, you know, a thinking entity as something that we should respect, we're once again creating a- another cast of something that we deem to be less than we are. When I saw Westworld, you know, and, and realized that people were actually taking vacations to be able to kill things that looked like people, that is just a really weird concept to wrap your head around. Yep. Absolutely. A very interesting conversation. Gray, uh, I'm looking at your notes here. We've covered a lot of what was in our, our chat notes here, but... <sighs> Let's talk about a couple things here uh, in your notes, and we're going to go around the table quickly. Let's see if I can hit one comment from each of you from the prep notes. Gray says, the smartphone has a limited lifespan in the age of rapid technological evolution. Smart glasses will become the new norm as augmentation and digitization become ubiquitous. And as I like to, when I go to the movies, Gray, and they do the, the Dolby, you know, it says Dolby, and the, the mm-hmm. young kid's voice comes on, I always whisper, all around you. Whoever is sitting next to me is like, what's wrong with her? It's just all around you. That's my version of ubiquitous. So talk to me about smart glasses. Are we still looking at them, through them, about them? Are they still on the in, in, available? Well, I think when I, when I made that statement, what I was really getting at was the fact that um, technology is constantly evolving, and for people to be completely invested in fighting over the bevel shape of, of the next version of iPhone is, is sort of missing the point. I mean, we know that that's a transition stage, just like a lot of these, tra- these technologies have been. I, you know, whether it's a pair of smart glasses, whether it's a smart suit, whether it's a pair of uh, smart contact lenses, whatever it is, we know that it's going to be on the body. Um, the age of looking down at a, at a small three by five window in your hand is, is it just doesn't make any sense. We have the technology to bring the vision back up to the horizon line where people start looking at each other again. Um, and I think what's going to happen is you're going to see the world with an overlay of information 
Um, so instead of separating you from the world, which is what the smartphones have really done in a lot of ways, uh, in the sort of moment, uh, you know, face-to-face scenarios, I think what's going to happen is technology is going to bring us back to looking at each other, where I might be looking at you and you may have all of this information floating around you about you, what you like, where you've been. It may show me, you know, your Instagram feed. I mean, these are the kinds of things that create deeper relationships. It's sort of what we talked about yesterday with the chatbots. You want a conversation with someone where they remember your favorite vacation destination, right? That's what creates Mm -hmm. uh, rapport with people, and I think technology is going to do that for us. Thank you very much. Let's quickly go around the table. Jeremy C. Thomas at Karam, what do you think? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, what Gray says is right. I think that we are moving to that world. And, and you know, we I think last time on this, um, on our first round of this, we talked about this idea of personal technology. And I think that's kind of what Gray mentions there is this, whatever it's going to be. Is it a, is it a shirt? Is it a, a, you know, what what piece of clothing? But it will be on the body and it will need to be personal to each one of us to finally start to integrate seamlessly into our lives. I don't wear glasses of really any sort. So the idea of ever having worn Google glasses to me was too much, but there are a lot Mm -hmm. of other ways for me to get it. Um, And I think that's where we're headed. I, I, I'm reminded a little bit though, in in Gray's description of back to the future, there's the scene in the, I think it's the second movie where um, there it's sort of like Skype and he's talking to his boss on the TV, Marty McFly. And has all the information, <laughs> how many family members he's got, where was his last vacation, and all those things. <clears throat> and I think it's interesting that because I think that is the world we're heading to. Um, my concern is that it's kind of like social media today, and that it's not as real as we want it to be, uh, because it only focuses on the positive. And, and while it's great to see someone's Instagram feed, I, I don't know that I believe at the moment that it deepens personal interaction. In fact, maybe. As of today, it's a bit of a distraction. You think? <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Josh Bernstein at Dell EMC, what do you think? Well, I was listening, I was listening to the last comment, and I, uh, I can't help but think about those experiences where you get a phone call, you get a telemarketer, or you, you call customer support, and uh, the person on the other end of the line you know, has all the information about you pulled up, and, and you know it. And so what it, my experience in this is that it, it depersonalizes the relationship tremendously. So you think about, you know, that scene from Back to the mm-hmm. Future. If I know my boss is calling me and he says, how was your vacation in Hawaii? And I know that he only is asking me that because it's sitting there in front of him automatically. Doesn't that depersonalize the, the connection that we have with one another? Um, I, I certainly think so. And, and I'm a huge fan of that kind of technology and that augmented reality. But um, I think... Um, much to the quote that I, I tried to lead in with in the opening, um, I think we're at risk of depersonalizing this, this level of, of human interaction. And so um, I, I find myself a little concerned. I'll also add that um, I have worn glasses since I was in the fifth grade. And um, just this past week, I uh, finally, finally scheduled myself for LASIK because I have zero desire to wear glasses <laughs> at ah. any point in the future moving forward. In fact, I can't wait to buy like regular sunglasses like a like any anybody else, um, just from the convenience <laughs> and the, the quality of life perspective. So I think these augmented reality um, experiences will come to us, 
but hopefully um, I won't have to ever wear glasses in order to experience them uh, longer term. So that, that was <laughs> my personal my personal take on it is I, I can't wait to get rid of my glasses. And um, I, I get concerned about this level of depersonalization. I mean, think about it when somebody, um, you know, wishes you happy birthday on Facebook on your timeline. They don't know it's your birthday. They just knew that it popped up on their That's timeline right. today. It's Josh's birthday today. So, um, you know, how much less does that mean? You know, I don't know. That's true. And, and Josh, I'm looking at a comment here in Jeremy Thomas's notes he sent me before the show, and this fits exactly what you're saying. Personal technology doesn't yet fit seamlessly into human life. I think we'll leave that one on the table because I want to make sure we get Jennifer Ford's comments on this. Jennifer, interesting, interesting conversation today, yes? It absolutely is. And, and I'm glad we've gone all over the place. This, uh, this always makes it a lot more fun. Okay, anything about glasses or, or tech glasses, Google glasses, augmented reality? Would you wear anything like that? Are you clamoring for it? Are you ask, asking your local optometrist when he's going to get a pair of fashionable AR glasses for you? <laughs> nope, I, I too have worn glasses uh, since I was in the, uh, the first grade myself. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is not something that I would want. To, I, I don't want to... I'm, I'm with Gray. You know, the, the less that you have to have, if I don't have to have a phone and somehow I can make it work with something else, I'm, I'm definitely of the uh, less is more camp. I, uh, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to have to buy, and I, and I certainly don't want to have to buy, uh, I'll call it point use types of, of items. Um, that's one of the issues that I even have now you know, with, with apps and, and how you have to interact with five different apps in order to be able to have a night out. I, I want less single-use items and, and, uh, and things that are supposed to help me. I want things to work more seamlessly together and not be additive. Yes, very interesting additive. Uh, I'm jumping ahead on a topic here we haven't covered on this show, I don't think even in part one. It popped up in Jennifer Ford's notes as well as in Josh Bernstein's notes. So I think it's it's important to find out what in the world this topic is doing with tech trends impact. So I'm just going to drop a word, blockchain showed up in Josh's notes. He says blockchains are an interesting trend in today's tech circles. And Jennifer's comment was blockchain is an important topic. Every day seems to bring another idea of an industry that may be disrupted or enabled through an application of blockchain, democratization of data. Josh, why don't you just give us a couple of sentences on what blockchain has to do with our conversation today in terms of tech trends? Sure. So, Blockchain is, a, is an interesting technology that relies upon a distributed consensus algorithm, which means that um, a transaction or a contract or an agreement can take place uh, between, say, two individuals, and then a distributed network of computers or other individuals validate and provide consensus that that transaction was legitimate and, that let, and more importantly, that the transaction was completed. So you hear a lot about, uh, you know, blockchains around uh, cryptocurrency. That's, I think, where it burst out onto the scene, this idea of, of Bitcoin and how we could, have mm-hmm. this concur- we could have this currency and we could buy or sell um, money. And, you know, it was kind of, kind of this weird area where people thought it was, well, it was anonymous and it doesn't really represent anything. There's a lot of weird speculation around it. 
But I think the biggest thing that blockchain um, brings to the industry is sort of an irrefutable record. And if you think of historical systems of record, they are ultimately, you know, lines in a database someplace. You know, Josh bought $15 worth of soda. Um, but it's really up to the, the, the transaction, the credit card processor in this case, to, to keep record of that. And, and so if I wanted to dispute that charge, um, mm-hmm. you know, the credit card processor has a very straightforward policy. We have record that you did it. We didn't really know it was you. So we're going to refund your money. But what if we could provide a, a system of record where um, it's not only one person that thinks that transaction took place, but it's a distributed consensus of people that said, yes, we know it was you, and yes, um, it irrefutably took place. And, and I, I've even struggled with, you know, where this is um, an interesting, where this could be applied in an interesting use case. And so I'll offer up two, two examples. One is I think this is very exciting in the realm of electronic medical records. As a, as a human in the United States, we um, have um, a sense of responsibility. We're given a sense of rights around who can do what with our records, but we are not given ownership of those records ourselves. So if you go to 15 doctors, 15 doctors have all this medical information about you. What you could potentially do with a blockchain is you could be given, in fact, you could own pointers to all of this data that's kept anonymously in, in all of these systems. And you could sort of provide the key to unlock access or pointers to all these records that exist. And if you had that key, you could also choose to do things like throw the key away or choose to remove certain records or, or, um, or sort of, you know, when you go to a different doctor, you get referred to a doctor, you, you fill out the same set of, uh, questions over and over again. Instead, you could provide a key that says, I know you need all this information. Here are the pointers to all of it. And I think, you know, we really have the opportunity here to empower um, Americans really to take over their medical records. Um, and, I, and I think that if you think about other areas where um, uh, other areas where sort of this, this importance of distributed consensus could be really powerful or this, this irrefutable fact that something took place is certainly in the courtroom where um, somebody is uh, accusing another person of repeated offenses. Um, and, and without getting, you know, too, too political here, you could see applications of this in, um, on college campuses, at the workplace, mm-hmm. where a irrefutable distributed proof, uh, distributedly proved record could be incredibly important in the court of law. And so I, I think it's still really early. People aren't really clear as to how the technology can be used, um, but I think it's very powerful. And so hopefully that was a, a long-winded answer to your, your question. Thank you. No, Josh, that was good because we hadn't even touched upon that. Jennifer, I'm going to read one item from your notes here, and then we have to I'll, – I'll give uh, Gray and Jeremy just a sentence apiece commenting on blockchain. Uh, Jennifer says, within business value chains, important data elements with blockchain are no longer yours or mine but ours. Jennifer, a one-sentence comment on that? Yeah, uh, traceability in food. We're looking for it to be uh, more transparent. And therefore, if you're, that transparency can only be created if all of the members in that value chain are contributing to and have access and understanding of, of where, their, where their products 
are used and, and fit within that, that entire chain. So that becomes an our situation, not a yours and a mine. Thank you. Gray Scott, thoughts on blockchain? I don't think you and I have touched this topic, at least not very frequently. So quick comment, Gray? Um, I love the idea of blockchain. I love the idea of the transparency that it creates. It also creates something, and I think we're sort of touching on this here, it also creates a truth uh, that's, con- that's pretty consistent. And that, you know, now that we live in a post-truth society, it seems, uh, I, I think it's really important that everyone can look at what actually happened. And there's an agreement uh, for the system to work. And so it has cultural ramifications as well as business ramifications. Thank you very much, Jeremy C. Thomas. One quick comment on blockchain before we go back to Gray and we do a quick predictions round. Jeremy? Yeah, I'd agree with, with Gray. I think that the, the cultural ramifications of this are, are huge. And, and while I like uh, Josh's example of, of using it in a court of law, I um, can imagine as a JD myself, I can imagine a lot of attorneys maybe not being as excited about having that on every person that they were representing um, mm-hmm. because it kind of takes a lot of their expertise and training out and off of the books. Um, and, and so there's even a danger there, but I think the information, you know, this is, this is the direction we're headed in and, and we need to, to hit it head on and make sure we design it the way it needs to be for everyone. It'll take a lot of the drama out of courtroom TV shows in terms of, yes, but I think your client meant this. No, we've got the blockchain here. That's not what she meant. Okay, we'll leave that one alone. The future of TV will change. Gray Scott, I'm circling back to you. Very, very brief prediction, and I never asked all of you what you're drinking today as part of our What's in Your Cup segment. So just tell me, what are you drinking or would you rather be drinking just quickly and then predict just two sentences each because we have three and a half minutes left, seriously, till the end. This was such a an interesting conversation. I just didn't want to interrupt you. Gray, what are you drinking and what's your prediction on tech trends by 2020? What will we see that's new and even more exciting? Gray Scott, go. I'm drinking a glass of lemon water. I'm trying to break my coffee addiction. Um, and my predictions for 2020, I, I think it's something that we've all been touching on. It's, it's the undercurrent of this conversation that uh, technology is going to continue to shift what it means to be a human on this planet. Uh, it's going to change the idea of equality on this planet, and it's going to be a mirror for who we really are and, and possibly what we can become. Wow. Okay. Let's, I won't ask anybody to top that one. That's pretty profound. Jeremy C. Thomas, predictions. Uh, 40 seconds. Go. Yeah, so uh, I'm looking forward to a stout. It's a rainy, kind of cold day today, so that'll be my drink later. Uh, predictions, I think that um, we will see massive unrest in adoption of some of these technologies, but there will be applications of augmented reality to relevant, real things that can make a difference to us in our world. Thank you. Also very profound, Josh Bernstein, Dell EMC. What are you drinking and what do you predict? 30 seconds. Uh- I'm not drinking anything, actually, this morning. It's so early in California, I didn't get up early enough to make some coffee. Um, but I, I think that we will see a change in technology that allows humans and humanity, both as a society and as a culture, to consume technology more smoothly. I think technology will become more human and more accessible. And I think the fear level in it will begin to decrease. And uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking for, forward to technology maturing to the point where 
it can be consumed in a much more comfortable manner. Very interesting. I think we're all looking forward to the day. Jennifer Ford, what do you predict and what are you drinking? Uh, absolutely. I agree with everyone. And, and I think that uh, the the insertion of technology and, and the rapid insertion that we're going to see within, that, that's continuing. I, I shouldn't see that we're going to see, that, that we're going to see continue, is, is going to, um, it, it's going to, it's going to pull at us as individuals to start to think more empathetically. Uh, I think that there's going to be concepts that we're going to struggle with because we, we aren't, I'm going to throw out, you know, and this potentially we can pick up at another time, the concept of a universal wage. If we don't, if we don't have jobs for everyone because, you know, there's something else that's doing the job, um, you know, and that person, yes, obviously could, can try to do something different or, you know, we have to think differently about what it means to be a citizen, you know, and, and what is adding value and how do we uh, compensate for the value that person brings to the table. So I think that there's going to be a lot of cultural questions that we have to grapple with uh, as a society. And I am going to stick, Bonnie, with Butcher's Cut Bourbon from Detroit Distillery <laughs> for my drink this evening. <laughs> Yay! Love a woman who loves her bourbon. Jennifer Ford, shout out to you for putting together a really stellar panel. This was a fascinating conversation, covered a lot of territory. Gray Scott, thank you. SeriousWonder.com, Josh Bernstein, Dell EMC, Jeremy C. Thomas, Karam. I'm going to think Caramel every time I think of you. And thank you to Kevin and the Business Channel team for getting us on the air and keeping us there. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. It's Thursday. That means I'll be back at 2 p.m. Eastern with a new episode of Changing the Game with HR. You don't want to miss that one so here's my call to action we got to go quickly here fasten your seatbelt what are you waiting for find some technology embrace it do something with it but remember to be a human at the same time thank you to our panel go out and be a game changer today just like them talk to you soon bye bye thanks again for tuning in to designing the future with game changers presented by sap the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Thursdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.